as Christians, we look at things that we say are secular. And we say that if they're, they're secular, we kind of leave them over here, that there's nothing to be gained by them. Uh, and then we look sometimes over here and we say, this is Christian. Uh, and we think just because it's Christian, it means it's the gospel. Uh, when the fact is that sometimes the Christian stuff maybe isn't quite as true as it should be, and sometimes the stuff that's secular actually has deep, profound truths in it. Um, and so I'm not saying that we always agree with everything that we watch or read or listen to, but so often there is truth in it. Uh, and it's truth that should be proclaimed and pointed out, uh, that that's God's truth. Uh, let me read you a quote uh, by St. Augustine. He said this uh, in a writing on Christian doctrine. He states, But let every good and true Christian understand that wherever truth may be found, it belongs to his master. Truth, right, is God's truth. And so when we see it in a song, we can say, hey, I've seen that in Scripture. That is true. Whether we say that's a secular song or a Christian song. And so that's what we're doing. So we are going uh, to do our third song in this series. It's a song that, like most others that John has talked about, it never reached number one on the billboards when it first came out. Uh, it, it topped at number four. Uh, but it has been a song that has stood the test of time. Uh, that once uh, the bass line starts playing, you'll know the song. Um, it's a song, actually, that has grossed, is the sixth highest grossing song of all time. Because it's been covered by hundreds of artists across dozens of languages uh, across the world. Uh, this song resonates with people. Uh, it's the song by Benny King, Stand By Me. Uh, and so uh, we're going to sing that today. We're going to cover it now. What, 401 times will be uh, our take on it. Uh, so I need you to get up off your feet. Uh, need to feel the music a little bit. Uh, maybe think you're at a wedding, right? And, and the music has started to play. And everybody's going out on the dance floor, floor to, to listen and, and dance to the love song. And so uh, our band is going to lead us in that.
Just as long as you stand, stand by me John comes up with sermon ideas, it often uh, means more work for the rest of us. Um, and this one especially, um, the band, you know, every week, uh, not only are they practicing and, and learning the songs that we sing, uh, but they're learning now a new song for this series every week uh, to play only two times exclusively once for each service. So let's give them a hand one more time. The song was written in 1961 by Ben E. King. Uh, born name was Benjamin Earl Nelson. Uh, and when he was asked, uh, you know, when you write songs, how, how do you come up with them? Uh, like, what, what's, what is your inspiration? And he said that growing up as a young boy in North Carolina, the only music he really ever heard was gospel music. It's the only music he heard. It's the music that he sang at church. And so he said in an interview when... Uh, on how to, you know, he came up with songs. He said, well, I just thought of a gospel song, and then I just changed the lyrics to make it a love song. Um, and so this song is really that. That's what happened. Um, there is a song by a writer named Charles Tinley in 1905 who was a pastor uh, and, and gospel hymn writer called Stand By Me. And in it, this is the lyrics, the, the first verse. It says, when storms of life are raging, stand by me, stand by me. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me, stand by me. 
When the world is tossing me like a ship upon the sea, thou who rulest wind and water, stand by me, stand by me. He goes on in verse after verse uh, to express this desire for God to stand by him uh, despite the troubles. Always kind of proclaiming the truth of who God is uh, and that he will stand by him. Um, and so this was the inspiration uh, that King took when he wrote Stand By Me. Um, and he changed it. Uh, instead of talking about God, now he changed it and he's talking, to, uh, talking about humans. Uh, about someone, a friend, a loved one, uh, standing by you. Um, and it's a song that has resonated uh, with people all over the world. Uh, like I said, it's the sixth highest grossing song of all times, uh, which is, was kind of a shock to hear that. But it's because it's been covered and put on movies and television so many times because it is so iconic. And, and the theme of this I need someone to stand by me. Won't you stand by me? It's something that we all understand. The lyrics are simple yet profound. And so artists all over have covered this song. Uh, and I thought, well, let's play a little game uh, and see if you can name the artist uh, that covered Stand By Me. Uh, so keep track of your scores. We'll see who wins at the end. Uh, our first category. Which Jersey-born artist covered Stand By Me? Was it the Jonas Brothers, Bruce Springsteen, or Whitney Houston? Bruce? Answer? Bruce Springsteen. All right, that's, the, that's your easy one. Okay, now we're going to get some, some harder ones. Which great boxer covered Stand By Me? Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, or Manny Pacquiao? I would love to hear a Manny Pacquiao version of Stand By Me. Uh, hint, it's not, that's not the answer. It is actually A, Muhammad Ali. Do you know that he, I, I was shocked when I found this, he wrote uh, and, and, and did a, an entire album called The Greatest by the Greatest. Uh, and in it, uh, he covers Stand By Me. And believe it or not, I'm not lying, it's not bad. Go home, look it up on YouTube, you can listen to it. It's not bad. And you can, you know, he's got kind of a distinct voice and you can hear it when, when he's singing. Uh, so you can do that. Don't do it while I'm talking, but later on. Um, all right, uh, next one. What food named artist covered Stand By Me? Black Eyed Peas, Blue Oyster Cult, Meatloaf. This one's everybody split. Answer, Meatloaf. I like Muhammad Ali's ones better, but uh, Meatloaf also covered this. I mean, there's hundreds of them, but we just picked a few fun ones. And here's the last one. If you have kids, you might get this. Which classic Disney character covered Stand By Me? Anna and Elsa, Timon and Pumbaa, or Sebastian? And the answer? Wait for it. Wait for it. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see Oh, I won't be afraid No, I won't be afraid
Timon and Pumbaa, if you're not listening to that, well, you're doing something wrong. Uh, I don't know where that was. I just found that online. I thought it was funny. So, um, yeah, so artists of all, all types, young and old, uh, all different languages, they've covered this song uh, because people understand it. People resonate with this idea. Uh, they understand this need for someone uh, to be by them, uh, to stand by them. And so this morning I could talk about your need, uh, and from the original hymn, of God to stand by you, and that God will stand by you. But for today, I'm going to assume that you know that. So if you don't, you can get out a piece of paper and write, God will stand by me. He's faithful, right? Stuff we talked about last week. But for this week, we are going to talk about this human need. This human need that we need others to stand by us. Uh, this, uh, it's actually something that we, this need we were created with. Because when you remember the story, right, in the Garden of Eden, remember God makes this beautiful world, right? The stars and the moon and the sea and the grass and the animals. And then he places Adam right, right in the center of it. He says, all this is for you. But then he looks at Adam and remember what he says? He says, it's not good for you to be alone. Right? We are created with this need for others. With this need for companionship, for partnership, for friendship. And so this morning we're going to kind of talk about this idea of friendship and what it looks like. And hopefully challenge you a little bit uh, in how you view others, how you treat them as friends. Um, and so I could, as I was thinking about this, okay, I'm going to talk about friendship. There are so many places you could start. Um, but... The one that jumped into my mind right away, it's sometimes you hear it at a wedding, uh, or, or maybe you've seen it on, on somebody's wall. It's in Ecclesiastes. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is a guy that is searching for the kind of the meaning of life. Uh, he's searching for truth. It was probably Solomon who wrote it, was one of the, or was the wisest man that ever lived. And so he is searching for, you know, what, what is this life about? And he comes to all these different conclusions throughout it. Obviously, you haven't read it, you should. Uh, it has a lot, obviously, of truth in it, of what he finds out. Uh, but this is what he says. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lay down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The man searching for truth, searching for the meaning of life, come to some conclusions about us. That two is better than one. But notice what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say things like, if you're, when you're playing games, two is better than one. Or, if you have a party... Two is better than one. Well, two's not even good for a party either, but, you know, multiple is better than one. No, he doesn't talk about any good times, right? None of that was good stuff. It was all stuff that is hard about when you labor, when you work. It's better to have someone alongside of you when you work. It's better to have someone alongside of you when you fall down so they can grab you and pick you up. It's better to have someone alongside of you 
when you're cold. Right? They can keep you warm. Right? It's better to have two instead of one when you are being attacked because you can defend yourself. Right? He's talking, right, about this friendship, this companionship. We use it a lot in, in, in maybe marriage when you, when you hear a guy or a pastor speak on marriage. Uh, about this ability to stick with someone uh, through thick and thin, right? That uh, you really find out, you know, who your friends are in adversity, right? You have lots of friends at a party. You don't always have lots of friends at a hospital, right? The writer of Proverbs um, says it this way. Um, a friend loves at all time, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. You could also kind of rephrase that, that a brother is born, meaning it's born out of adversity, meaning you find out who your true brother is, who that person that will stick with you like family in adversity. This is what King taps into when he writes a song. It's a, it's a feeling that we want, that we want someone next to us, that we want a friend. And all of you, I guarantee, can identify with that. Right? I identify with that, that I want someone that when right, it's dark and the sky's falling and the mountains crumble, that is going to be there with me. Not just for the good stuff, but for the really hard stuff. So I could give you, when I was thinking about this, well, let me give you kind of a biblical example of this. Uh, and there are all sorts of stories of friendship through the Bible. Uh, Naomi and Ruth, uh, David uh, and Jonathan, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, um, even Jesus and his disciples, right? Timothy and Paul. Uh, but the one that came to my mind and, and is the classic story of friendship is Jonathan and David. And it's a classic for a reason because uh, there's some, some profound things on truth in there. And so I like to tell stories. So I'm going to kind of tell you this as a story. Um, and I'll pull out a couple of verses. But this is found in 1 Samuel starting in 17. If you've never read the story of Saul and his son Jonathan and then David... This week, right? You know, we all the time go, oh, I need to spend more time in God's Word. Guess what? Go grab your Bible. Sit down. It's an easy story to read. It's a narrative that, that just walks you right through the story of David and how kind of uh, his triumph over Goliath and so on that we'll talk about. Go home and read that. 1 Samuel 17, you start there and then go forward and learn about David's life. So, let me start the story. The people of Israel um, were a people chosen by God. Uh, and God had said to them uh, that you're not going to be like anybody else. You're going to be distinctly different. Um, and while all the other nations that surround you, they have kings, you're not going to have a king. You're going to have me. You're going to have the one true God. And so you don't need a king to follow because you follow me. But what happens, and happens in my life all the time, I look around and I see what everybody else has and then I decide, well, I want that too. Um, and so the Israelites are no different. They look around and they see a physical king, a king of these other nations, and they go, we need a king. We need a king. And so they start telling God, hey, um, I know you said you'd be our king, but you know, we can't really see you, uh, so we want a king, a physical king. 
And so after kind of some back and forth, you can read about that, God goes, okay, I'll give you a king. Uh, it'd be better without one, but I'll give you a king. And so he gives them Saul. Um, and Saul is said to be this strong, good-looking, uh, big guy. Uh, and he takes over as king, as the first king of Israel. And he does what kings do. He starts to rule, and he then has to go out to battle the enemies, the opposing nations against them. And one of those nations is the Philistines. Um, and we get to the story that you learned as a kid uh, of David and Goliath. Goliath is a Philistine. See, what's happening is... I'll switch it up this time. You guys can be the Israelites... You're the Israelite army. You have come out with your king Saul to do battle with the dreaded, evil Philistines. Sorry if you sat here today. You're the Philistines. But the Philistines have a champion on their team that is bigger, stronger, and badder than anyone the Israelites have ever seen. And that man is named Don Timmerman. No, uh, Goliath, right? Goliath is this tall, strong, it, it gives you all the details of how much his armor weighs and his spear, and he's just this massive, really giant. And every day he would walk out as the two armies are separated, kind of to the middle of the battlefield, and it says literally curses the Israelites and their God, saying, come and fight me. Send somebody out. You want to do battle? Send someone out. If you beat me, we'll serve you. The Israelites said, and not only the Israelites, but Saul is afraid. Because Goliath is a monster. Right? You know the story. He's huge. Nobody could defeat Goliath. He's probably got gnarly scars on him. He's got someone that carries his shield. I mean, this is the man. And everybody is just sitting there listening. Day, it says after day, Goliath hurling insults at the Israelites. So, in walks David. David is the son of Jesse. Uh, he has older brothers that are actually in the army, but he's too young. He's just a shepherd. He's tending the flocks. And his father one day sends David with some food, and he says, hey, uh, take it to your brothers. So he goes, and he starts to hear Goliath come out. And he starts to hear the men talking about it. And David's like, why isn't anybody fighting them? The Lord is on our side. Well, Saul hears this. And so he calls David, uh, and he starts to talk to David. And I don't, man, David must have had a way with words, because remember, this is a boy, uh, you know, maybe a young teenager, a shepherd boy, and he convinces Saul that he's going to be the one to go fight Goliath. And so after they talk for a little while, uh, and, and remember David's classic line, like Saul goes, you're only a boy, you know, a shepherd, like how, you're not going to be able to defeat him. He's a seasoned warrior. And David says, you know, I've killed a lion and I've killed the bear and I'm going to kill this guy too because the Lord is on my side. And so Saul agrees. Um, and he goes, okay, you can go out and fight Goliath. And so Saul decides to give him something. If you can put that first one up. It says... Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. His own tunic. I want you to remember that. It's going to come back in a, in a little bit. 
Saul literally takes his own tunic, his own kind of garments, his own armor, and he puts on the coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastens on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. Literally, Saul takes his tunic, takes his armor, gives it to David. Says, here, you're going to need this. You know, I'm giving this to you for the battle. And David takes it and tries to put it on, but realizes, man, I can't fight in this. Like, I, can't, I can't do anything in this. But I want you to remember something, because we're going to come back to it, that he gave him his own tunic. But when he gave him his tunic, right, this is a conditional gift. Right? What's, the gift is that I'm going to give this to you, but you're really going to do something for me. You're going to go out and try to kill this giant. A conditional gift. Some of you might have friends that give this out. Conditional gifts, um, which is not really a great friendship when anything I give you is something uh, because I want something back from you or return from you. We're going to look at how that's quite the opposite in a, in a different friendship. So Saul gives him his tunic and he sends him out. And we know the story. David takes that stuff off. He goes to the riverbed, grabs some smooth stones, puts it in his sling, walks out there. David's mo or Goliath is mocking David. David, right? Goliath falls down, runs over there, kind of skipping head, chops the head off, right? Obviously, there's a little bit more, but read about it. The Israelites are so inspired by what David and really what God did that they defeat the Philistine army. They rout them. Right? They chase them. They kill a whole bunch of them that day. And David is something of a hero. Well, not he is a hero uh, because of what he did. And so Saul, seeing this in David, uh, keeps David close to him. It actually says that he comes up and he talks to Saul. He tells them what he did. And then he keeps them close from that point on. You could say they start to maybe form some sort of friendship between Saul and David. If you were looking on the outside, you're like, man, Saul let him go fight the battle. Saul even gave him his own tunic and armor to go fight. And then you keep reading, it says that Saul ends up making him like commander of a thousand men. A thousand men he gives to him to go fight the Philistines. It says that David is successful because the Lord is on his side. And Saul starts to notice, and Saul starts to get jealous. Actually, says that Saul starts to be afraid of David because the people might love David more than they love me. And so now, this maybe you could call it a friendship, um, turns a little bit south. Saul realizes that if I don't do something, David might overtake me. David, the people might want David as king. And so he gives them another gift. He gives them something else. He says, hey, you should marry my daughter, my oldest daughter. You could be my son-in-law. In the back of the mind, he's thinking, and it says this right in Scripture, that he's hoping that the Philistines will kill him uh, because what he was asking from David was, the only thing you need to do is fight for me, and you can, like, marry my daughter. David goes, no, like, I can't be your son-in-law. Like, I'm just a, like, I'm a poor guy. 
Like, I'm just a lonely shepherd from a poor family. I'm the son of Jesse. And so he doesn't marry her. But Saul goes back, and this time he takes the daughter that says is in love with David, and he knows David will want to marry her, and he says, hey, this is your second chance. You can be my son-in-law. Now, once again, from the outside, you look at this. You see a king that has taken this boy and kept him close and given him command of an army, and now he's offering his daughters to be his, to, to be his wife. You say, man, that's like a close friendship. He's offering his daughters to be married to this man? Well, David, uh, once again, tells the king, I, you know, I don't have anything to give you to, to marry your daughter. And so Saul goes in the back of his head, how can I destroy this guy? How can I bring him down? So he goes, the only thing I want from you, and you can marry my daughters, is that you need to go kill a hundred Philistines and bring me back their foreskin." That's the price. I don't know about if you had to pay any price to get married. Uh, that would have been a tough one for me. Um, but David, it says, not only goes and brings 100, he brings 200. He doubles it. And it says then he brings it all to the king and counts it out in front of him. Like, sometimes you just got to laugh when you read scripture. I mean, you, you can laugh. I, who's like 189, 180? No, wait, what? I should have put him in piles of 10. No, like, this is the scene, though. David goes above and beyond for this guy that he probably thinks has a good relationship with, but is actually trying to destroy him. There's a kind of a slang word. It's called frenemy. Did you ever hear that? It's when, you know, someone is your friend up front, but secretly, like, despises and hates you and hopes for your destruction. Maybe I overstayed that. But they are your rival, even though kind of in front of people, your friends. I work with students. This is all over the place. Like, everybody's chummy-chummy in front of each other. And then the back, they talk about how much they hate each other. We kind of laugh at that, but guess what? They learn that from somewhere. Sometimes we do that, right? We're friends with someone superficially up front, but ultimately we have this kind of rivalry between us. And so this is what's going on. Um, Proverbs, um, again, puts it this, this way, which I, I find... Uh, also true of this story. There are friends who destroy each other, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother. There are friends who destroy each other, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother. This is kind of the relationship that Saul and David has. Saul is bent on David's destruction. He's threatened by him. He's jealous of him. He's fearful of him. And up front, I'll be nice to you, but man, I, I hope you die in battle. I hope you're gone. As the story continues, if you know the story, right, it actually starts to come out not just behind like closed doors. Uh, Saul at one point is picking up spears at a dinner table, and it says is literally trying to stick David to the wall. Uh, and David, and this happens twice. 
Like the first time I get invited to dinner at your house and you throw a spear at me is the last time I come over. David comes back and gets thrown at for a second time. And so now he knows that Saul is actively trying to destroy him. Okay, now we're going to rewind the story a little bit. Back to right after, we're going to talk about Jonathan and David. Right after David kills Goliath. Uh, right after David kill, kills Goliath, uh, we get this uh, in Samuel. And this is what it says. After David had finished talking with Saul, meaning he kind of, uh, most believe, kind of explained once again how he killed Goliath, that it was the Lord that was on his side. It says that Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as his self. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Let's pause there. Go back to three once. Thanks. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. They became like brothers. Uh, they have a friendship that was close. Uh, they made almost kind of like, like a... Ever heard of like blood brothers where you like make a pact and you know, you prick your finger and you... Have you ever heard any of that? My brother, uh, when he... Remember, Brother's a little crazy. Hopefully he's not watching this. Um, when he was 19, he moved out of our house, and he got this grimy, dirty apartment. And I mean, it was bad. Uh, and I think he was paying about $200 for rent. Uh, this thing, and I'm being dead serious on that, and it was, you know, it was a hole in the wall. But I came over there because, hey, it wasn't at my mom's house, and so, like, I'm going to go see, I'm going to go see my brother. So I'd go over there, and the one day I noticed on the wall, uh, in the hallway, kind of this little, uh, kind of, not little, medium-sized smear of blood. I'm like, Pat, like, I know the, like, the place is, like, kind of nasty, but, like, what's with the blood on the wall? He's like, oh, I cut myself by accident, and then I was going into the bathroom to get cleaned up, and I kind of brushed against the wall, and, and that's there. I'm like, didn't you think to clean it up? He's like, no, it's all right. So I'm like, okay. Next week, come over. And the blood smear has kind of increased. Now there's like two blood smears. I'm like, Pat, like, what's going on? Why, what's with the wall? He's like, well, his roommate and him were really close. He goes, we were talking one day, and uh, we were talking about how close we are, at, you know, as friends, and that we're like brothers, and so he had gotten a small cut on his hand, and so we thought, like, you know, we could be like blood brothers, and he should smear it on the wall next to mine. I'm, I'm being serious with this. This is not an exaggeration of the truth. And so I'm like, okay. And from there, the legend of the blood wall went on because they decided that everyone in their group of friends should add to the blood wall. I'm not kidding. And so every time you'd walk over there, there'd be more and more prints of this. I mean, it got, even my uncle was over there one day. They convinced him to, like, prick his finger and wipe it on the wall. I look back at my life and wonder, like, what did I live? Um, I never put any blood on the blood wall. I said, I'm blood brothers with you, so your blood is as good as mine. You know, I'm in this circle. Uh, but this is, like, that's the pact that they made, that they were friends. Now, I doubt Jonathan and, and David did anything like this, uh, but they do make this covenant with one another. 
that we are going to be friends. Maybe you can remember doing that with maybe when you grew up. Probably don't really do that as, as adults anymore. Maybe we should. Uh, but as kids, you go, you know, we're going to be friends forever. No matter where we go, we're always going to be friends. And so Jonathan and David make this pact. They make this covenant that they will be loyal to each other, uh, that they will be friends. Um, and so it finishes with this. Um, it says that Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Jonathan does the same thing his father did just the chapter earlier. He takes off his tunic, he takes off the stuff that's his, and gives it to David. He gives it as a sign of we are equals, that we are friends, that we are going to stay together. But he gives it to him with no stipulations, with no conditions. It was given as a gift, the sign of friendship. Saul gave one that had conditions. It looked the same, right? It's almost the same language. Saul takes it and he gives it to David. Jonathan takes it and he gives it to David. But Saul gives it with conditions. Jonathan gives it out of pure friendship. The thing about it in your own life, do you have friends that give you conditional gifts? Do you have friends that give you gifts with no conditions? I found it fascinating when I was reading that, that it looks almost the same, but it's totally different. The heart behind it is totally, totally different. Because I'm giving it out of a love for you, not out of a what can you do for me. This is what King taps into when he writes the song, because this is the desire that most of us have. We want a friend like that. We want a friend that is going to give emotionally, right? Is going to give their time, is going to give their energy to us. And not just when it's convenient for them or when they can get something back. But because we're friends. Because you want to stand by me through thick and thin, through good and bad. When I fall, you help pick me up. And so Jonathan starts to display this relationship with David. This true friendship goes on in the story, and you can read it, that Jonathan and David, I mean, they are tight. Um, and they have this close relationship, and the covenant that they make with each other actually gets explained kind of in more detail. You can read that when you get home, about how close and what they were promising each other, that they would be loyal, uh, that they watch out for each other, that their best interest was for the other. Uh, and Jonathan displays this uh, pretty profoundly in the, in the next chapter. So this is what happens. David is now, uh, you know, at odds with Saul. Saul hates him. Saul has tried to kill David twice in public, multiple times privately, um, and David is afraid to go back to Saul's house. I mean, shame on you if, you know, you come back after someone throws a spear at you. Uh, but he doesn't want to go back. But Saul is going, I'm going to throw a big party, and I'm inviting David. And David's like, tells Jonathan, hey, your dad's just invited me over for dinner. You know, like, hey, invite David over for dinner. Um, I'm not coming because, you know, your dad has tried to kill me twice. 
and I want to be a third time. And so Jonathan and him talk, and Jonathan decides, and he tells David, you know, wait out kind of in the fields, and I'm going to go test it out and see, and kind of test out my dad, see what he's thinking. And so he comes in uh, for the feast, and Saul's asking him, hey, where's David? And Jonathan's like, oh, I told him, you know, he didn't need to be here. Well, this goes on for a little bit, and Saul gets ticked. Saul is mad. And Saul starts basically cursing David because he wants to kill him. And then he starts basically cursing Jonathan. And this is what he says to Jonathan because he's so angry with David. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame? And do the shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you. Let's pause right there once. Go back. Don't you know that you have don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame? See, Saul knows that God is taking the kingdom from Saul. Saul has disobeyed God, and, and it's been made clear to Saul that the kingdom's being taken away from you. Which means Jonathan's not going to inherit it like it's like you know, Saul wants. And Saul knows that David is kind of his rival. And he knows that if Jonathan doesn't do something about David, Jonathan doesn't get to be king. Saul's lineage doesn't get passed down. That's it. David starts something new. And he's yelling at Jonathan, don't you realize this? Don't you realize this is why he's got to go? He's going to take your throne. He's going to take your crown. Go ahead on the next slide. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now, send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Jonathan responds, why should he be put to death? What has he done? David's done nothing wrong. And Jonathan knows this. Jonathan's his friend, is sticking up to him in front of his father, the king, saying, hey, John, David hasn't done anything wrong. Like, why are you after him? Why do you want me to betray him? Well, Saul gets furious. And so it says, Saul hurled a spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Saul literally does to Jonathan what he tried to do to David. He is so angry, mad, jealous, fearful of David that when his son sides with him and friends, Jonathan's on David's side. And Jonathan's got to go too now. And it says that he throws the spear trying to kill him. And Jonathan knows at that point, which if it wasn't already obvious, yeah, my dad does not like my friends. Right? My dad is not a fan of David. Yet Jonathan stood up for David. Like when you read that, when I read that, man, I want a friend like Jonathan. Like we all want friends like Jonathan. Too bad a lot of times we got friends like Saul. We want a friend that is going to stand up for us, that is going to help us, that will literally sacrifice themselves for us. Like Jonathan is standing between him 
like David and Saul. And in the middle, there's like death. And Jonathan is stepping into there for David because they have this friendship. I found it fascinating when uh, doing uh, the research for this and studying. Um, it talks about uh, how Benny King uh, came um, to write this song, Stand By Me. Um, and if you didn't know, he was a part of a band, if, I don't know if I said this already, called the Drifters. Uh, it, was, it was five guys. Uh, they sang like this magic moment. Uh, there's some other ones that some of you more mature people might remember. Um, but they were a top band. They were a top hit. They had multiple songs out uh, that were at the top of the charts. Um, and so someone asked King why he left the Drifters. Because he left the Drifters and then after that he uh, came up with this song. Uh, and in an interview, uh, this is what he writes. And I'll read you his words. Uh, he said, we had a manager whose name was George. When we took the name of the Drifters, we signed a contract to be put on salary, which I think was like $100 a week, a piece, $500 for the five of us. But one of the members of the group, I can't remember which one, found out we were making three to $5,000 a night. We were getting $100 a week a piece. Everybody got upset about it. So on the way back from one of our tours, we decided that we set up a meeting with George and ask him for an increase of salary, right? So you can imagine this. They're in this band. Um, they're a top band. They're uh, having gigs almost every night. Uh, you're getting a decent salary. But all of a sudden you realize, like, we're making 100 bucks a week and we're bringing in five grand a night? And so it says that they, you know, talked together and decided, hey, let's go to the manager and demand a raise, right? We need more money. Um, and so this is what they do. They go to their manager and uh, they ask for a raise. And this is what King says. So we got back to New York and met in the downtown office. We told him our feelings about the salary and what we were getting. And he looked at me because I stood up and made some speech and said, well, look, you stand aside, and anyone who wants to join you can do so. I walked out in the hopes that the rest would follow. When I got out, I stood next to the door, and no one followed. I found that fascinating as, um, you know, King, King knows the feeling of being left alone, of being kind of stood up, of, you know, walking out that door expecting probably four friends that he would call friends to walk out that door with him. And when he got out there, he stood there all alone. Right? We want somebody to stand by us. We ask people, stand by me. This is why the beginning of that song, the first two verses, we, we all sing. Right? When it's dark out, when the nights come, Right? Won't you stand by me? You know, if you stand by me, I won't be afraid. You know, if the sky, if it's coming down, if the mountains are crumbling, stand by me. Right? I won't cry if you just stand by me. The fact is, we are all looking for a friend like Jonathan that will stand by us through thick and thin. This is why that song has been so popular. 
because each of us know that feeling. We know that feeling that, you know, I know I have friends when it's good, but do I have friends when it's bad? Do I have friends when, it's, when I'm down? Do I have friends that will stay by me when it's not just convenient? So the band's going to come up, uh, and I'm going to close um, in saying this. Um, that, you know, it's easy to look at the story of Jonathan and David and then look at your friends and go, Psh, bunch of jerks. Like, none of them are like Jonathan. Like, I need new friends. Uh, they're all more like Saul's than they're like Jonathan. Uh, Steve said that I should get some Jonathans. And I, and I am saying you should have some friends that are like Jonathans, and hopefully they will be there. But what I love about the song, as I listened to it uh, about a thousand times this week, over and over, is the last line of the song. The first two verses are songs asking someone to stand by him, saying, stand by me. But did you catch what the last line is? Whenever you're in trouble, stand by me. Whenever you're in trouble, stand by me. He switches it. He goes from not just asking someone, looking for the Jonathan, to being the Jonathan. Of saying that when you're in trouble, I'll stand by you. When you're in trouble, I'll be the person that will help pick you up. I'll be the person to help protect you. Jesus says it this way in John. He goes, and you guys know this verse, right? Um, what is that? Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. The love that's talked about there is an agape love. Uh, that's the word agape. Uh, and there's multiple words used uh, in scripture for love, but agape is a sacrificial love. It's a love that costs something. I mean, that's its very meaning is it has to cost something. It has to be a sacrifice to be agape love. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, agape one another as I agape you. He goes on to say, in the same word for love, greater love, greater agape, has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Here's what I challenge you. Instead of constantly thinking about the people in your life that have not been good friends, that have been poor friends, that have been friends that have let you down, that hasn't been able to pick you up, friends that don't want to work with you, friends uh, that won't protect you, fair weather friends, instead of dwelling on that, what I challenge you is, and what really we're told as Christians is to be that friend, is to be the friend that sticks with people, is to be the friend that sacrifices for others, that is the friend that loves you to a love that costs you something. When's the last time a friendship cost you something? And I'm not saying because of something bad they did and it cost you something. I'm saying something that you sacrificially gave to them. Maybe they have no idea to make it better for them, to promote them, to build them up. Have you sacrificed something for them? Have you been that Jonathan for them? Have you been a friend to them when it's been inconvenient, when it's been hard? 
That's what God calls us to. We're going to close today uh, and sing, so I invite you to stand up uh, as we respond uh, this morning.